0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson.
0: All right, what do you want? This is about slapping each other in public. After so I slap you, you slap me back, Raven. So, Dad, hit me. Hit me.
1: I'd like to think that we settle our disputes in a more sophisticated manner, Josh. Yeah, usually we do it via Twitter. <laughs> Tweet slapping, yes. That was Joaquin Phoenix with John C. Riley delivering the blow in *The Sisters Brothers*, a new western from French director Jacques Audiard.
0: This week on the show, our review of *The Sisters Brothers*, plus a sacred cow review of Sofia Coppola's *Lost in Translation* in honor of its 15th anniversary. That and more ahead
1: on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I think, Josh, maybe for this episode, instead of talking into the microphones, we should just mumble into each other's ears and see if anyone can pick it up. I'll make for a great show. (laughs) Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation is, of course, the movie I'm referencing there. It arrived in theaters 15 years ago this October, and... It says here in my notes that it went on to make over $40 million at the box office. But I could have swore, Josh, that I saw that it made like $119 million at the box office. I, and really, 15 years later,
0: what does that mean? I don't I have to do the inflation. Is that impressive? Are well, we supposed to be surprised at that? It's certainly
1: impressive when, if I saw this correctly, it was made for only $4 million. OK. So, yeah. That's so it, a return. So it made some money. Yes, it did. <laughs> Coppola was nominated for a Best Director Oscar and she won for Best Original Screenplay. The film itself was nominated for Best Picture back in the days of the five movie Oscar race. Bill Murray nominated for Best Actor for his turn as Bob Harris. And later in the show, we'll have our Sacred Cow review of Coppola's, if not her best, arguably her most loved film, or maybe we'll just spend 20 minutes sharing our theories about what Murray does whisper to ScarJo at the end of the film. I don't know if it'll take 20 minutes, but I do want to get into that. You do. I I have a new theory this time around. Oh, I can't wait. All right. That's Sacred Cow Review, plus Massacre Theater and more later in the show. But first, they're brothers who share the last name
0: Sisters. Got it? I do. Okay. With that cleared up, let's move on to our review of The Sisters Brothers.
1: Hey! This is The Sisters Brothers!
0: You don't stand a chance.
1: Charlie, huh? We've had a good long run. We need to get out. We can open the store together. A store? What is this is nonsense. You walk in the front door and finish the job. I caught the trailer once. For the sisters' brothers several weeks ago, and I couldn't wait to finally see it. I was excited about the cast, which featured three of my favorite people to watch on screen these days Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Phoenix and Riley are the sisters' brothers, Charlie and Eli. I thought that was an inspired pairing, and frankly, I was excited to see Phoenix play opposite Riley in what appeared to be a comedy. One that seemed broader, perhaps, than what we get in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, where Phoenix is so good. Or even The Master, where his Freddie Quell is such a quirky societal misfit that sometimes you can't help but laugh at him. The biggest laugh in the trailer that I recall is that moment we played at the top of the show. Riley's Eli is angry at his brother. He's getting his horse ready. He's packing up to leave Charlie because they got into a fight at dinner the night before that resulted in Charlie slapping him in the face in public, no less. Charlie suggests they reconcile by having Eli slap him, and before he can finish the line, really, Eli wallops him in the face. At our screening tonight, the moment did produce some chuckles, to be sure. But instead of laughing myself, I was mostly thinking about the pained expression on Eli's face just before he punched his brother and knocked him to the ground, and just how genuinely wounded he was by his brother's action, including the conversation that prompted it and the words that were shared between them how Eli in that moment was almost surely rethinking every decision he'd made in his life to get him to this point. Which is all to say, The Sisters Brothers ended up being a far more melancholy and darker film than I expected. Even from Jacques Odiard, the director of heavier fare like The Beat That My Heart Skipped, A Prophet, and Rust and Bone, here he's making his first film in English. Did you welcome the sisters brothers, more serious tone, Josh, or would, I don't know, a little more sagebrush stepbrothers have been welcome. Fortunately, I did not see that trailer
0: previously, so I didn't have many comic expectations. I mean, maybe having Riley paired up some of those other films, pairing him with another actor did bring to mind his work with Will Ferrell. Uh, And I would say there are certainly darkly comic moments in the movie. Yes. But I really hope that trailer doesn't end up shooting this film in the foot. Because if people do go expecting something like that, they're going to be very disappointed. This is—melancholy is a good word for it. I would also describe it as uh, extremely pensive, um, thoughtful, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe ponderous. If it, If this doesn't work for you, you might lay that term on it. It did— absolutely work for me as a variation on the Western genre, but really one that's also exploring some of the things that most Westerns, I would say, concern themselves with. I I think of Westerns a lot of times as survival pictures. You know, they're almost apocalyptic movies in the sense that they depict this world, not in the future after some collapse, but in the past where it was almost pre-civilization in a sense that people were living in a collapse in Mm -hmm. a way and there are two choices that are starkly given to someone living in that time at least in a lot of western movies it's either you're going to live off other people for your own survival or you're going to live alongside them and sure you could say that's the way we live today but we can hide our choices a little better in polite society Mm -hmm. when you're out in the in the west as depicted in some of these films It's obvious whether you are gunslingers for hire, like these brothers, who live off of literal killing, or if you're the detective played by Gyllenhaal, who is also living off the pain of others, or if you've made another choice, which is what the fourth crucial character in this film seems to be towards, Riz Ahmed. Mm -hmm. He's a chemist who is prospecting because he believes he's devised this way of finding gold through a formula. And his ultimate desire is to form a more, I don't think civilized is the right word. He, he talks about, he's almost a guru figure, um, a, a more placid community where violence isn't the order of the day. And so he maybe represents, you know, this idea of living alongside others. And Riley becomes the crucial character. This ties into what you were talking about in describing that scene because he's the guy who's kind of in the middle. Yeah. He can't really hide that he has a little bit of this instinct towards goodness or living alongside people even though accompanying his brother he's really an agent of death so watching him navigate across that divide carried me through this film it gave a lot of nuance to a scene that could have played like slapstick that punching scene and maybe does in a trailer but here you're right Um, with a lot of character building going into it before it there's some really great layers there
1: we're both gonna sell this movie pretty hard I think and yet we might struggle in that endeavor with our audience when they hear us talk about it a little bit more, including words like melancholy and pensive and thoughtful, and I'll throw a few more in there. Yes, there is humor, but you get a lot more grisly violence. Oh, it's brutal. Than I expected. Brutality is the other word I was going to use, and I do appreciate, I can live with that if the movie is going to question that in some ways, and I do think this movie does, but also... It's not pretending to be anything other than it is. It announces itself right away with that extremely violent opening where it's nighttime and there's a shootout. And even though the sisters brothers are outnumbered, as they often are, they do prevail in the battle, but they do not hesitate to just point blank shoot anyone who's in their way, who they know is their enemy. In the head, spilling blood is just not an issue for these guys, especially not for Charlie. And in that opening scene, nobody's spared, not even the animals in this scene, though they aren't killed because of our two brothers in this case. But I think that sets the tone for the entire film. These are hard men making a hard living in really hard country. And so I did appreciate that fact. And I think that there are these wonderful little touches that the movie gives us that indicate what kind of a world it is without anyone having to say it and even without us having to see some of these bigger set pieces the way odr focuses on john c Riley going to sleep at night i think the first time we see them sleeping out in that wild country and the way his hand just naturally goes down Mm -hmm. to the gun before he falls asleep the way they go into a bar after this violent encounter and they have the whole bar to themselves to your point about how the other people, they know what kind of people these brothers are. They know what kind of people they are as individuals. And that guy walks in to get a drink. And when they say, leave us alone, he instantly turns around and they get that bar to themselves. I did assume, I think it's impossible these days to watch any kind of Western and not bring up the R word, not wonder if it's a movie that is going out of its way to be revisionist and I guess I really appreciated about this one. As much as I love a good revisionist Western, whatever that even means anymore, I really appreciated the fact that I didn't feel like ODR or anyone else involved was trying to score points by going down that path. Yeah,
0: I I can't say it's revisionist. I can't say it's classic either, though. It almost exists in its own interesting little space. Mm -hmm. And and an earlier film from this year, uh, it was during Summer Vacation, you weren't on the show. Katie Reif reviewed it with me. Damsel, I think, tried to do something similar. I I would say The Sisters Brothers is more successful in carving out this arena. One element that's not classic is the language. Sure, They use a lot of modern, what seems to me to be modern terms. Yes. And especially conversations. Vulgarities. Yeah, vulgarities. And and that seems to be like we're watching something of a piece with today, but it certainly doesn't feel like a meta commentary on the genre in any way. And I think I appreciated that about it as well. It certainly keeps you on your toes. Maybe about three quarters of the way through, I thought we were heading towards a confrontation and had in my mind, I was still enjoying the film, but I had in my mind exactly how it would play out. And I was even telling myself, you know, if it goes that way, I think this will still have been a worthwhile journey. I I can see what's going to happen who's going to face off against who, who's going to get it, and I'll be okay with that. And there were probably two more, I wouldn't call them twists or turns, but just off-center developments that made the film that much richer of an experience.
1: Obviously, you won't spoil them here, but that did surprise me. It really surprised me, too. I had the exact same train of thought. I imagine almost anyone in the theater who has seen movies like this one before started to see how the puzzle pieces were probably going to line up. And we will just say they don't line up that way at all. And that really did surprise me. I agree the language is a little bit anachronistic. How bloody it gets, perhaps, is a little bit anachronistic, at least for a film of this kind. It almost feels at times like we're seeing some gunshots and blood spilling like we would in a modern-day action film. But otherwise, it isn't trying to challenge tropes or be precious about how it's defying conventions. And actually at its core, like so many Westerns I can think of, the movie's really about change, right? It is about this this being caught in between. Modernity is encroaching. And we see that in moments like when they arrive in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's really breathtaking the way they're seeing what a modern city looked like at that time and that place and it has toilets that flush and we see riley's reaction to that and the way he decides to buy some toothpaste and he keeps up that regimen these little inventions these things that are supposed to make us more civilized and more sophisticated some folks like eli are at least giving that a chance yes while you have others like his brother Charlie, who are stuck in their older ways. And that really does become, in a way I think, that isn't too heavy-handed or underlined. It becomes the crux of the entire film. It's really about this possibility or the lack thereof for this society to ever be less barbaric than it is, this vision of a more civilized, evolved society. And how do men, men who make their living off of such brutality, how do they evolve with that how do they change with the times or not
0: that sort of brings us to the dynamic between the two leads so i'm curious to to hear what you made of that because it was probably the most intriguing piece of this movie to me as well as to see phoenix paired with
1: riley and and how that was going to work what would you think I loved them both. In fact, I loved all four performances, and that includes Hall, who I know we differed a little bit on how we viewed his performance in Bong Joon-ho's Okja, where he was really playing a big character. And here he's not, but he is playing in this Detective John Morris, someone who is a little more civilized and evolved than the sisters' brothers, and he's got his own Accent. He certainly has his own kind of way of speaking, his own manner of speaking. And we're not surprised at all when we later learn that Charlie, Joaquin Phoenix's character, thinks he's totally pretentious and can't stand him. That voice, that way of speaking is a big part of it. But for me, it really did work here. And both Riley and Phoenix are, they're just two of our most gifted actors. And it doesn't matter whether they're doing broader comedy or they're doing really serious stuff. And I think that the movie, to its credit, Relies a lot on their expressions and close ups of their faces and the way that they interact with each other. We really do feel as if we have a pretty deep understanding, at least I did, of the nature of their relationship and everything that they're haunted by, which sometimes is verbalized, but it's also there in those eyes and it's there in those expressions. And sometimes just watching those guys gesture is enough you don't even need them to say anything it really is just their movement and their physicality in phoenix too if you think about it he's playing someone who isn't that far removed in terms of his brutality and his profession from the character we saw him play and you were never really here yeah that crossed my mind as well and yet for me the way he embodies this character charlie is completely different than that character so even though they do The same thing for a living and some of the same territory is mined here. Phoenix does it in a completely unique way. The way he talks, the way he holds his body, it's completely different. I would
0: say I think they're both good individually and their scenes together work. Um, but I don't know that they ever create something, jointly create something that comes alive simply because the two of them are in the same moment. There's one scene that I think does work that way, and it's their dinner in San Francisco. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a crucial part in the movie. It's kind of a, a moment of confrontation between them. But even before it gets physical, I think there's a lot of interplay where there's a, a little bit of magic in the air there. It's interesting because I think Phoenix has um, more of a moment of magic with Gyllenhaal that's just on the verge of confrontation. Yeah. And and I suddenly thought like, man, I'd love to see a movie with these two up against each other all film long. Hmm. They they had something really going on there. I wonder if it's a little bit uh, a matter of the character as written for Phoenix because you're right, he does share some surface traits with the guy and you were never really here. And I think that's mostly what this film gives him. It's something of the straight up Psycho performance, and he does it really well. I mean, he's scary. There's a moment here where he's threatening a potential victim, and the person has a choice of providing the information or making this rough and painful. Mm -hmm. And when they make the choice that will allow him to inflict violence, you flicker in his eye and a smile. So he's he's really scary, but he's playing the psychopath. Well, and I'm not sure there's a ton more than that. We felt much more below the violence and the anger, and and you were never really here, I think, and that yeah. might just be a matter of how these characters were envisioned. There's just generally
1: more humor too to his character. Well, that could
0: yeah, it that makes that could him be a well. little
1: less deranged. He's he's
0: lighter, he's lighter. Yeah,
1: uh, but Riley just. Is
0: a revelation is, yeah. in – well, revelation is in the wrong word. We've both we appreciated him for many years. He's done drama. He's done comedy. But um, the way this movie kind of forms itself around him and he allows that to happen without trying too hard. And I do think it might be because Eli hits that sweet spot of characters for Riley. He's done all sorts of stuff, but many of his characters are are these guys who – they just can't live up to their imposing physical presence. You know, there's a there's a gentleness yeah. or a softness inside them that's belied by the physicality, and you see it in the eyes, you see it in the you hear it in the voice and in the delivery. And Eli is something similar. It's a perfect fit for this character. Again, this guy who's playing the role of the brutal killer, but not entirely comfortable with it, flirting with moments of a more civilized life, back to the toothpaste here, which Mm -hmm. is a great character touch. Um, And this is just the kind of person that Riley can do so well without saying anything. He just combines that body with that face. And you can sense that there's so much more going on inside this guy. And, And this really does ultimately become... Eli's story and journey, without mm-hmm. throwing any of those other important characters um, to the to the side. Yeah, I want to spend a little more time on Riz Ahmed too, because uh, you know we've seen him in other things, paired off with Hall a few years ago in Nightcrawler in a supporting role. And man, is he mesmerizing here, he given a part that's supposed to be that. Again, you know this this prospector slash chemist is a bit of a guru, but the conversation scenes he has, no matter who it's with he just allows them to open up to him. And he becomes this almost spiritual figure who is the antithesis of everyone else in this movie, really. And having that force and having Ahmed able to embody that is just so crucial to making this work.
1: Yeah, you're so right. He is this figure who has to have some transformative power over everyone who comes in contact with him. And certainly if he's going to turn at all these brutal sisters brothers, which he does. I think we can say that without spoiling anything just slightly. We see some of that change in a certain direction inside them. That performance has to live up to that. It has to make us believe that. And I love the fact, too, that we don't know how we're supposed to feel about him either. He's enigmatic right away in the way ODR portrays him. We only see him through the eyes of Gyllenhaal, who's writing about him which just in that act kind of makes him a mythic character. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's someone who is just this sort of day laborer and seems so simple and average and that there's nothing spectacular about him at all. And that's why then when we finally do get to hear him talk. This is a movie about people who, for the most part, don't ever engage in any type of conversation. They usually do shoot first. And the less they know about the people they're after, the better, right? But Gyllenhaal's character, that's one of his flaws, I guess, is that he can't help but be curious and can't help but want to engage and connect with people. And once he allows Riz Ahmed's Herman in Once there is that connection between them, then we see that spark that's there. And we absolutely understand why Gyllenhaal's character makes some of the choices that he makes. And I'll go back to what you said about Riley for a second and how great he is here. Really, all the best scenes in the film that any of the key actors has, they're all acting opposite Riley in that scene. I would say that the scene we get pretty late in the film, between John C. Riley and Riz Ahmed, where Riley opens up to him, mm-hmm. where he basically asks him a question. And the guy says, well, it's complicated. It's a long story. And he doesn't even say anything back to that. Herman just pauses, looks him dead in the eye, and he's focused. And he basically entreats him without saying anything to actually open up. And I love the moment we get right after that, where We do see in the movie that something has happened just before this scene to Riley's character that might make him a little unmoored. And yet the way the movie plays it, he almost faints after talking to Ahmed's character. And the way I read it was more that he had just unburdened himself. The fact that in that moment, he said something to him that he had probably never actually verbalized to anyone before. That's what made him actually physically dizzy in that moment
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and herman has that effect there's a calmness to him um he he's reasonable and he allows that space for an exchange of something other than gunfire yeah. as you were talking about uh, gunfire brings me back to you mentioned at the opening of this film i'm unfamiliar with odr's work so you i can't seen a prophet speak prophet to either no, i oh, can't man. speak to you know what sort of visual qualities he usually tends to To bring, but that opening, which is a gunfight, and here this also speaks to this movie being in its own place. It's not staged like a classic Western, but it's not like a contemporary action shoot 'em up either. It's a long shot and it's night dark we can see the sky in the background our eyes directed there we think that's where something's going mm-hmm. to happen and then from the darkness below we just get these eruptions of gunfire and it captures the chaos it captures the devil-may-care approach that these brothers have mm-hmm. when they are in a gunfight and it's really a thing of of scary beauty i think that's a hallmark shot here and also i would say Again, we don't want to give too much away, but the final moments.
1: I was going to ask you about the ending, even though we aren't going to talk about it. It's a stunner.
0: I was really moved by it. I was too. It's a, you know, a a cheated single take, essentially a montage that way of domestic scenes and I will say I think it also works really well because the very interesting Alexander Desplat score I love the score here is doing some of its best work in those final moments it it achieves this sort of uh, gentleness that I don't think we hear earlier at least if we do it's in very small touches and here it's given a chance to breathe yeah it's a really lovely ending it
1: is and that score I'm glad you brought it up because it's another element that's slightly anachronistic Mm -hmm. like some other elements in the film but not I thought it was like a 70s cop show or something. Not in your face, though, in the way some other Westerns might have chosen to do. I really did appreciate it. And you mentioned that opening scene again. It goes back to the brutality in a way and the way violence is depicted here where we as audience members don't really get any gratification out of it whatsoever. Either a bunch of people are shot in the dark or they're shot off screen and we just witness the blood that's been spilled or... People are shot abruptly in this film when they are shot in gunfights. And I think in that way, it does underscore the brutal nature of this landscape and of these men and of the society. The very thing that the movie is questioning, whether or not we can ever, if these characters can ever move on from that. But unlike a lot of violence that we do see more commonly, certainly in action films, it really is not entertaining ever at any point. And it's also, in my mind, not ever played for laughs either, which violence and gunplay often can be. Sure. And I would
0: say less attention is paid to the violence itself than to the wounds, sometimes specifically yeah. of that violence. But mm-hmm. think about in almost every sequence, someone or something is suffering from a wound. I mean, it's the characters in many instances, Riley at one point from a spider bite that's sort that is sort of played for laughs and then gets increasingly yes. serious and scary. His horse gets wounded and that's something that's carried through a number of scenes. Again, the worse that gets for him, we're just constantly reminded of how difficult it is to survive in this world.
1: Constantly being reminded how difficult it is to survive. Almost suffering in every scene, we're selling you on (laughs) The Sisters Brothers. It is out now in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you are brave enough to go see this film, we might be the ones to send you there. We are giving away Admit to Run of Engagement passes for The Sisters Brothers when it plays here in chicagoland amc theaters you can go to filmspotting.net slash events to try to win those free passes
0: when we come back i'll share why tea with the dames was exactly my cup of tea then we'll honor the great actresses in that documentary with our own performances in massacre theater or not plus our sacred cow consideration of sofia coppola's lost in translation stay with us
1: Tell me something, girl.
0: Do you write songs or anything?
1: I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Bradley Cooper and Stephanie Germanota. Lady Gaga to you, Josh, in the trailer for A Star is Born. Cooper also directed and co-wrote the film. I noticed she's billed, though, on screen at least, as Lady Gaga. Yes. Did you see that? No, I did see Didn't that. Didn't want the kids to get confused. I guess not. It is the fourth big screen adaptation of the tale of an aging, alcoholic, industry heavyweight, discovering and falling in love with a talented newcomer. Josh, how familiar are you with the previous incarnations? How familiar might you be with... By the time we review this movie next week, if you aren't already, there's the 37 version, Frederick March and Janet Gaynor, 54, James Mason and Judy Garland, and 1976, Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand.
0: Haven't seen any of those, so really? I was a bit relieved after the screening we attended, Cooper was there doing a Q&A where he mentioned how... When he signed up for this project, he had not seen any of them either. So I don't think this is as strict of a remake, at least in my mind, as I thought it would be. That being said, I do have the 54 version with James Mason and Judy Garland right next to the TV as we speak, hoping to pop it in in the next day or so. That's the one, you know, having been on a bit of a Garland kick in our house going back to Meet Me in St. Louis last year in the Manelli
1: Marathon. Mm-hmm. I want to prioritize and try to fit in before we record our review. Yeah, I've seen the 37 very good. I'm a fan of it. It was the first movie actually we watched in my Movies About Movies class. Co-taught that with Maddie several years ago at the University of Chicago's Graham School. The 54 with Mason and Garland, I'm positive I watched after watching the 37, maybe even showed some clips from it in the class. I had not seen the 76, which is probably a little closer to the Cooper-Gaga one insofar as it's about the music industry. Okay, And Cooper plays a country slash rock singer in the vein of chris christopherson in that film the other two are about the movie industry with garland and gainer playing aspiring actresses but josh i started my homework i decided to fill in that blind spot i did not finish the movie i might finish the movie is this a time constraint or a quality constraint oh it's it's terrible oh boy the 76 a star is born is terrible. Another reason for me not to feel bad if I don't get to it. Next week, we will have a review of the new Star is Born, plus our top five right now. One I think you threw out, Josh. We're thinking about doing our top five movie duets, like the singing kind of duets. And who better to bring on as we talk about Garland and talk about singing and musicals in Hollywood than the great Michael Phillips. Yeah, really, that idea was just an excuse to get him back on the show. Yeah, that's true, though. We're going to go from a duet ourselves into a trio, which I'm not sure makes any sense at all. But we look forward to that show. We might need to mention that to Michael Phillips at some point. That's probably a good idea. I don't think we actually asked him. It's coming up. We're going to be recording soon. (laughs) Yeah. If next week he's not here, you know why. If you have a better top five idea, we'd love to hear from you. I already have one of my five picked out Longtime listeners may even be able to know where I'm going there. But otherwise, I'm going to have to go back in to the Archive of Great Musicals to pick out some scenes. We'd love to hear your choices. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a voicemail. 312-264-0744. Last week, we did our Sacred Cow review of Lawrence of Arabia, and we shared our Top 5 David Lean Moments. With this poll question, what is the best original non-biopic musical drama since The Last Star is Born? Obviously looking ahead to that review, the options we gave you, Josh, were Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, Craig
0: Brewer's Hustle and Flow, John Carney's Once, Cohen Brothers' Inside Lewin Davis, Lenny Abrahamson's Frank, and John Carney's Sing Street. We also offered the option
1: of so not a shock at all. The Cohn brothers and inside Lewin Davis, which was my pick, if a somewhat boring pick, is currently leading the pack. I have not gone through all the poll comments on this one, just as I didn't really weigh in in the forming of this question. This was a Sam Van Halgren joint, and he, I'm sure, wants us to clarify that we are distinguishing between musical dramas that is movies with singing and straight up musicals so everyone in the poll comments asking what about la la land that's why it's not eligible makes sense almost famous also came up in the poll comments as a possible oversight but we are going to apply the all that jazz rule to this one cameron crowe's 2000 film isn't technically a biopic but that is him that is his story up on screen just as bob Fosse gave us his alter ego in joe gideon Hopefully, you can look past all those oversights and vote in the poll if you haven't already. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Now, all those clarifications, and yet I have one little snag, potentially. Isn't Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark? An all-out musical? An all-out musical? It's been a long time since I've seen it, reviewed here on the show as part of a marathon with a previous co-host. I think you might be right. But I feel like it's... A musical in the same way La La Land is. If I'm wrong, we look forward to those comments in the poll as well. We will have the results on next week's show. Right now, it's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show
0: where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Where do you think those boys are now? Up in heaven?
1: Getting fit for wings? No. I'll tell you where they are. They're not. That's where. They're nowhere.
0: They're gone. I really wish I could believe in that stuff. This is real. The cold. Oh, that's real. The air in my lungs. Those bastards right there in the dark. on us. It's this world that I'm worried about, Delgate. Not the next. That's Liam Neeson and Frank Grillo in 2011's The Gray. It was written by Ian McKenzie Jeffers and Joe Carnahan based on the short story by Jeffers, and it was directed by Carnahan. That massacre was part of our Dudes Being Hunted by Things in the Woods episode a couple of weeks back. We're referring to... Shane Black's The Predator. And we also did a blind spotting review of
1: 1972's Deliverance on that episode. It was our Burt Reynolds tribute. Brian Stein, who just moved to Seattle, writes, is it the gray? It would tie in nicely with Deliverance Manly Men versus Nature. Plus, I think Josh was going for a Liam Neeson accent and Neeson post-Taken has had a very Reynolds-like career arc. Yeah, I'm going with the gray, Brian Wright, of course. And I don't think he's wrong about that. Comparison between Reynolds and Liam Neeson. Either. No,
0: that makes sense. We also heard from Joe Scheit. He's in Seattle, Washington as well. This is a complete guess because I haven't seen the movie, but Josh sounded to me like Liam Neeson having a stroke, so I'm
1: guessing it's the gray. Hey. <laughs> I don't know if we got any compliments in here. There were a few, Josh, on the accent. Andre, Cadeau writes in from Charlottesville, Virginia. When Adam mentioned that the accent work was important in Guessing Masquerade Theater, he wasn't joking. I racked my brain off and on for a week. Josh sounded a little bit like Jack Palance, but I was pretty sure City Slickers didn't include a Hunger Games like <laughs> subplot. Then I wondered in which film Jesse Ventura played an 80 year old man maybe the straight-to-video Predator 2049. Finally, after listening to the clip one more time during your most recent episode, the lines about the cold helped me to remember the gray. So I guess Josh felt it was okay to reserve any hint of an Irish accent for when he said, out there in the dark stalking us. (laughs) Is that the word? I'm just glad I could keep you busy. Is that the word I thought I got right? Yeah. Which one was Um, it? Some listeners were guessing which word you thought you nailed. I think it was, I thought it was bastards. Yeah. Okay. Bastards is what some people guess. So they were. I was proud of that. Keep up the great work, Andre says, and congratulations ahead of time on making it to 700 episodes. Quite an accomplishment. Thank you for that, Andre. Also
0: heard from J.M. bossy in Vancouver, Canada. The scene you two performed was between Frank Grillo and Liam Neeson in one of my favorite movies of all time, Joe Carnahan's underappreciated masterpiece, The Grey. I imagine the intended connection to your review of The Predator is the overt masculinity of the film's respective casts, or maybe how each follows a group of men who are killed off one by one. The Grey, however, follows this formula to a more worthy end, not dismembering victims for its own sake, but instead exploring man's relationship to the harrowing incursion of mortality. Maybe an incidental connection is the release of Golden Brick winner Jeremy Saunier's Hold the Dark, which will be out on Netflix September 28, the day after this massacre theater will be revealed. Hold the Dark is also about wolves hunting people in the Alaskan wilderness, which sounds like a perfect subject for Saunier. Hopefully, it will be distinct enough from the gray to complement it rather than challenge its reign as the most <laughs> profound depiction of wolf maulings ever put to screen.
1: <laughs> Have we done like that it. top five yet? I Don't think we have. Top five wolf maulings. Can't wait. No, we may get to that here. Episode 800, I think we'll save that one for Hold the Dark, we should point out, of course, being Sonia, the director of Green Room and Blue Ruin, which did win the Golden Brick, as J.M. Bossie pointed out. We were very excited to see this movie. We still are very excited. We did consider that we might review it on this week's show Weren't able to get a screening link ahead of time, but it may just get some time on next week's episode. Thank you to everyone who played along with our acting shenanigans, not a brimming film spotting hat, Josh, but you're going to reach in and pick out this week's winner. And that is David L. Williams. He's in Belfont, Pennsylvania. I think it's Belfont. Yeah, I think you got it. And David L. Williams, a playwright, a longtime listener of the show. I kind of find it hard to believe he's never won Massacre Theater before, but. Josh, we're going to go with it. Congratulations to David. We're going to get him his very own Film Spotting t-shirt. All he has to do is email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five
0: five curtain calls. That was an actual once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time.
1: We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. Josh, any hints, any clues we want to give at all?
0: No, this is, I think this is much more familiar to audiences, this film, than The Gray. Yes. So it has that going for it. Uh, it's a lot longer of a scene than the one we did from The
1: Gray, right? Wasn't it that is. just one line of dialogue we have to for have both of us? Yeah, our stamina here.
0: Yeah, we, our stamina. It's very suspenseful,
1: though. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Unless we just ruin that. Okay, you started off. Yes. I'm going to give you the action. Okay. And action. Lionel Pritchard and the Wolfington brothers are back. It's time
0: for an ass whooping. This is not an intelligent way to approach this. Lee is a friend of mine. This is
1: his son. Yeah, we'll be doing Lee a favor. All right, listen. We both go outside, move around the house in opposite directions. We act crazy, insane with anger, make them crap in their pants, force them around till we meet up on the other side. Explain act crazy. You know, curse and stuff. You want me to curse? You don't mean it. It's just for show. What?
0: Well, uh, it won't be convincing. It doesn't sound natural when I curse. Just
1: make noises, then. Explain noises. Are you going to do this or what? No, I'm not. All right. You want them stealing something in the house next time? On the count of three. One. All right. Two. Three. Ah! I'm
0: insane with anger!
1: And... And Scene. That is how you usually articulate your emotions. I think that was typecasting here. About as crazy as I get. (laughs) If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Did we change the names this time? Who knows? The deadline is Monday, October 15th.
0: The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on film spotting.
1: The sweet sounds of Larson Recommends. It's been a while. Yeah, it has, I think. And
0: I can wholeheartedly endorse the use of that music. You were talking about how... It might be a hard sell. The Sisters Brothers in our main review, Adam, I feel like people are going to see Tea with the Dames and think, oh, that, that sounds There nice. has to be so
1: much suffering. That
0: sounds lovely um, and never get around to watching it. I want people to go out and see this thing. It is so delightful extremely informative about acting and uh, the past of these four british actresses who are at the center of this it's eileen atkins judy dench joan plowright
1: and maggie smith i'm sorry dame judy dench and dame maggie smith and they're maybe all dame, the others they're too. all day oh, okay that's yeah. the point oh, Adam. oh okay that's where the title <laughs> yes, ah, yes i got it
0: now. and they talk a little bit about receiving that honor and so yeah it's a lot of commiseration and th- these four have been friends we discover for decades and they've had this tradition of getting together at Plowwright's country home and just hanging out. So director Roger Michelle, who's done a lot of British romantic comedies, he was invited in with a bunch of cameras and allowed to, you know, it's it's constructed, but be there for one of these gatherings. He prompts them with off-screen questions and there's a lot more to this than just that sort of delightful tea time that you think you're going to get and that you do get, it's really moving. And I think it was especially so, okay, it's moving. I think it will be for everyone. There are moments here where their conversation just sort of drops And they sit in that silence, that comfortable silence that only really good friends have where they all know what the others are thinking. And there's something really cool about being able to watch that, especially after you've heard them share some memories and tease each other, call each other's bluff, all this sort of stuff. That's just a joy to watch. And for me, it came at a really interesting time, a really interesting year where my grandmother, who was 94, passed away at the start of this summer. And I was fortunate enough to have grown up at the feet not only of her, but a bunch of her sisters. And I just remember them commiserating the same way, Hmm. you know, older women who are sharing a lifetime of experience and can communicate in that way and just getting to be there and watch that. And it was like being with all of them. Only one of my grandma's sisters is still alive now, but it was like being again with all of them together at the same time. So I'm sure other people, whether it's family members um, or or someone have had that as well. And this is kind of a a recreation of that. Hmm. If you've never experienced that in your life, here's your chance. Tea with the dame. So... Go out and see it. Don't just kind of shove it aside as a a sweet but, you know, frivolous documentary.
1: I think you'll really be happy that you did. I am excited to see it. Maybe not as excited as I was to have my own little – cinematic experience this past weekend. I do want to mention the 70mm Film Festival at the Music Box. Of course, we saw Lawrence of Arabia and talked about that. I didn't end up going to West Side Story again, but my daughter Sophie went with my wife, Sarah, and Sophie saw it for the fourth time and loved it. And then I took the three oldest kids, Holden, Sophie, and Quinn, to see Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade in 70mm on the big screen there at the Music Box this past Friday night. And I think it's the first time I've taken those three to see a movie that wasn't a kid's movie, at least what we think of as a kid's movie, an animated movie, since Jurassic Park. This go a little better? Four or five years ago, Quinn was a little bit younger. Yeah. And he got so traumatized by the film and the dinosaurs that I had to actually call Sarah to come pick him up in the middle of the film. He was not going to sit in the theater any longer. Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade went a lot better josh Good. i'm glad he trusted you to uh
0: he did and to even go along this and time
1: i actually was the most excited to see this movie again because i was taking quinn to go see it holden and sophie had already seen it with me and i know that they liked it but i just felt like this was in quinn's wheelhouse at age 11 sure he was the perfect age for this film he loves raiders of the lost ark so i knew he would be into it and he loves like his older brother loves history I just really felt like he was going to go for it. And boy, did he ever. Now, it helps that you're seeing it at the music box. Looks great, of course, in 70 millimeter. Packed house. A packed house that's ready to have a good time. So when Harrison Ford, when we get that first close-up of him, Mm -hmm. when it goes from the young to the old to the current Indiana, and he's getting punched in the face on that boat, the crowd cheers. When Sean Connery appears for the first time, the crowd cheers. And when Indiana Jones says, Nazis, Nazis. I hate these guys. That has a different <laughs> resonance now. And everybody cheers. The crowd was so into it. We were right there along with them. And there's even a moment, I forgot how funny this movie is. Every time I see it, I realize that it's even better than I thought it was before. The action's even better, but also it's funnier than I do remember it. And this time I really keyed in on the banter and that relationship between Connery and Harrison Ford as father and son, they are so perfect. And I'm telling you, Josh, there's a moment that occurs where they're being questioned by the Nazis and it comes out. It's that moment where it comes out that the older Henry Jones also slept with Ilsa. Mm-hmm. And there's that pause of recognition on Harrison Ford's face as that hits him. And the audience takes it in and everybody's laughing and It's almost as if Spielberg knew exactly how long the laugh would be or Connery knew because he waits it out. There's just that perfect, awkward beat, beat, beat. And right when everyone's done clapping is exactly the moment when Connery finally says something. It's just that kind of crowd pleaser. And even the moment that I remember, I know Brett Merriman's listening. He already gave me some grief for it on Twitter because I dared to say that this movie is as good as, or belongs in the same conversation as his beloved Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a moment I remember watching the last time I saw Last Crusade thinking, okay, this is the one bit of humor where it just pushes it too far. And it's the one where they're in Germany, they're in Berlin, and Indiana Jones is dressed up like a Nazi soldier and he gets pushed into Adolf Hitler. And Hitler grabs the diary and opens it and signs his name. And I thought, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just cheesy. You know what? watching it here and watching Quinn die with laughter at that moment <laughs> made it all worth it. And it is one of those moments where I realized, you know what? I saw that movie for the first time, I think when I was maybe 13 years old and certainly saw the earlier Indiana Jones films when I was younger. And it is the perfect age for those movies, that one in particular with the humor. But There's enough sophistication to it, certainly enough sophistication to the filmmaking and how well all of those action scenes are choreographed and the sentimental side to the film, which still plays like gangbusters, the father and son moments there. Last Crusade has everything and it was a great night.
0: Let's not get carried away and say it's as great as Raiders, but I think it would be in strong contention if we did like a top five franchise installments, like follow-ups to a classic movie that, that... Got everything right once again. Especially course,
1: after the disappointment of Temple right, Adil. There,
0: there was some serious course correction that needed to be done, and man, did Spielberg do it because this thing is, in a lot of ways, like almost reliving Raiders all over again. All right, so previously this year, we went back to 2003 for a 15th anniversary Sacred Cow review of Lord of the Rings The Return of the King. Next up, our reconsideration of one of that movie's best picture competitors, Sophia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Not as many hobbits. <laughs> Stay with us.
1: I could feel-
0: things taking a break from my wife forgetting my son's birthday and uh getting paid two million dollars to endorse a whiskey when i could be doing a play somewhere
1: oh but the
0: good news is the whiskey
1: works (laughs) fair to say one of the most beloved if unconventional movie couples of the last couple of decades bill murray with Scarlett Johansson in Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. After debuting at the Telluride Film Festival in the late summer of 2003 and then playing the Toronto Film Fest, Coppola's film opened on about 800 screens, made over $40 million domestically over the course of its run, $119 million overall with its international gross. By far, Coppola's best-performing film at the box office, which I will say, Josh, for reasons we may get into... I was surprised to hear how big of a hit this film was, even with those Oscar nominations. It got four of them, including Best Director in Picture and a Best Actor nom for Bill Murray. Coppola won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. In the 15 years since Lost in Translation,
0: Coppola has gone on to make four more features. Marie Antoinette, Somewhere. Bling Ring and last year's The Beguiled. Now, guest host Angelica Bastian and I spent a lot of time on all of those movies last year when we did our top five Sofia Coppola scenes. That was tied to our review of The Beguiled, and yeah, we both had a moment from Lost in Translation on our lists. I won't share those now because they're probably going to come up in our review here as we get into it. Adam, what was interesting in our conversation in that top 5 list discussion is Angelica and I both had the same reaction to revisiting lost in translation for that list for the first time in a while for okay. as well it had been a number of years and we found independently that on this viewing that relationship struck us as decidedly less platonic mm-hmm. than it did when we first saw lost in translation and we tried to figure out there's an age difference between the two of us so uh, i'm older and i talked about how when i first saw it in 2003 i was probably closer to scarlett johansson characters age Mm -hmm. and now seeing it again oh man my daughter is closer to her age and we're a little closer to bill murray's age exactly Well, i was going to leave that out but thanks (laughs) not extremely closer please come on we've got we've got a Maybe a decade? Yeah, I don't know. at least. Oh, man. At that least. really depressed me, Adam. Anyway, but it's curious because, as I said, Angelica, quite a bit younger, so in looking at it through a different lens, but still had that impression. So that was one of the things I was eager to hear is just if you remember how that relationship struck you in 2003 and mm-hmm. then if that
1: changed at all for you on this recent viewing. I don't have a strong recollection of seeing this film for the first time. I don't know why that is. My sense of it, I've only seen it once. It was probably not in the theater but might have been. I think at that time it was pre-film spotting and I wasn't seeing as many movies. I probably watched it on DVD one day and I remember kind of thinking, I'm not sure what all the fuss is about. Hmm. You know, it was nice to see Bill Murray in a more challenging role. I was still kind of figuring out who Scarlett Johansson was, obviously, as an actress, but it didn't have the impact on me that it did so many people. As I think back on it, I do feel like, Josh, I was in the same boat as you, which is that I felt like their relationship was more of a friendship that left this kind of open question of maybe in another time and place and if circumstances were a little bit different, they might have connected romantically. But that really is something just hinted at Mm -hmm. at most. And watching it this time, I was surprised at just how much it's More than hinted at. And I think where you really see it, of course, is when he has a little fling with the redheaded singer Yeah, in the hotel bar and she comes to the room and wants him to come explore with her. But she recognizes that there's another woman there and... That's that moment, watching it again and really not remembering that scene or those interactions at all. I was thinking, okay, this is going to be a real test. Does she react at all like a jealous lover might? Or is she happy for her friend that he made a new friend and they'll connect later? And you really do see. some of that jealousy come through. Yeah. You see some of his own shame in that moment as well. And they then go out to that lunch, which I love when they connect later during the fire alarm. And I think it's her that says that was the worst lunch ever. And it, <laughs> and it really was. It felt like it. And it felt like the kind of lunch that would happen, the kind of moment that would happen between two people who had feelings for each other that were a little bit stronger than just being friends.
0: Yeah, there's certainly jealousy at play there. And I think that registered more strongly for me this time than the first time when I felt it as disappointment, you know, that she was they would had this talk about marriage and he'd seemed to be this guy who was trying to figure yeah. it out still while admitting how tough it was. Um, and the first time I read it as she was disappointed in his choice mm-hmm. for that reason mm-hmm. here. And this is and the wonderful that may thing. Still come yes, through. this is the wonderful thing about Lost in Translation, which for the record remains my favorite Sophia Coppola film. And I'm a huge fan of hers uh, is that it's still there. There's still that mixture of just. You're not sure because the characters aren't sure, and and it's wonderful to be able to share that feeling
1: alongside with them. Yeah, I think that one of the joys of this film, and overall, I will say I wish I had been able to devote a little more time to really thinking about this film and thinking about why even now as I appreciated so many aspects of it so much more than I remember in 2003, and I'm sure we'll get to at least some of them, It's a movie that still leaves me a little bit cold, and I think it has to do a little bit with some of the humor here, where while it does have some genuinely funny and amusing moments, especially some of those one-liners of Murray's, there's also a lot of Murray riffing that doesn't really work at all Hmm. that plays not so well these days, too, in 2018. Oh, sure, the
0: the cultural situation. There's a
1: lot of humor here that plays off stereotypes and really easy, go-to, cliched Japanese jokes, that whole black toe bit when they're out eating one day, the lip my stocking scene, they're not funny. They're just really not at
0: all. And there are clearly choices that I think both Coppola and Murray probably, if the film was being made today, would make different ones. That doesn't take away, you know, any blame for making the poor choices
1: then. I agree. It's definitely there. And I feel like some of those scenes do feel... As they get out of the hotel, I don't know why it is that I love every scene they have together. And I love both performances, which is something I didn't feel at the time. I really think Scarlett Johansson is every bit as good in this film as Bill Murray. I love all of their encounters when they are sitting at the hotel bar or they're in a room together. And something about when they do make the prison break and we see them out, whether it's doing karaoke or they're just exploring on the town or they're running around – Something about those scenes loses me, and I'm not entirely sure what it is. But when they are together, when they're just sitting opposite each other, and Lance Accord, the cinematographer That's that's what I was going to say. Can I I tell you why? It's because you're (laughs) you're losing that lighting. And and, and the (laughs) composition of those scenes and the way they're interacting with each other, that for me is really what stood out, honestly, more than anything, was the type of connection they make. I love the way Coppola – captures it and renders it where they have that first little encounter in the elevator, which he remembers seeing her, but she doesn't even remember seeing him. And one of the things you do recognize in this film is that being a movie star that he is, this Hollywood actor, especially when he arrives in Japan, almost everybody who sees him is either looking at him, To get something from him, or they're looking at him to serve him in some way. And you can see, you get the sense of the exhaustive nature of that, the toll it takes on the person who's constantly getting those looks. And the way she looks at him in the elevator is just kind of that glance of someone who doesn't really consider him one way or another, but knows that he's another American in the elevator, in this kind of crowded elevator. And she smiles at him. It's just this moment of kindness. But the way even they make their first real connection where she's sitting at the table with her husband, Giovanni Rubisi, talking to the Anna Ferris character, the Hollywood actress there, and she just kind of keeps looking over at him and he looks over at her. Those... Types of connections seem so genuine to me. I think we can all find them in our lives, even if they're not exactly of this nature. There isn't that type of age difference. Maybe it's not romantic in nature, but somehow you can just sort of look across the room or see someone at another table and you finally interact with them. And you do just, you feel like you know that person. And you mentioned this when you're talking about Tea with the Dames. It's something that struck me here. I love the fact that unlike situations so often where you're just meeting someone for the first time and even if you are getting along with them really well you're not comfortable in those kind of awkward silences and they can just sit there with each other they just sit there with each other because they are that comfortable and I think that the most truthful moments that happen in this film are the ones where they're just sitting with each other. Absolutely.
0: It's something of the opposite of what I was talking about in the review of The Sisters Brothers, where I said how John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, I appreciated both performances, and they have good scenes together, but I didn't feel they created anything together. And that's all that Johansson and Murray do here. Mm -hmm. Every moment between them, you see a, a third presence Evolve on the screen, appear on the screen, and you can sense it and feel it, and it's simply made from their interactions with each other, those silent pauses, the comfort they have there, which is – that's the sign of a real relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to just sit like that in silence and that they can have that together so quickly. Um, And when you talk about the glances and the recognition they have, so what is the bottom line thing they share? To me, it's that neither of them – wants to or is maybe even capable of and at this point Bob Harris the Murray character doesn't have to neither of them puts on a front for anyone think about Charlotte when she's meeting the star with her husband she right. can't she can't even pretend to i guess she's polite but she can't be Fake enthusiastic. She's no. all she can manage is bare, no, barely she's polite. showing her right? She's yeah. she's trying not to, but it just comes through. Yes, and that's and how he Harris, has that same contempt. Th- that's ex- and he has it for you know the the director right. who's giving him ridiculous instructions, right. um, the talk show host, and and I think here's where some of the line where the cultural insensitivity, which is absolutely there, I think what happens there is they push too far the sense of cultural dislocation, and. We can often do that when we travel and feel uncomfortable and, and and kind of resort to to maybe politically incorrect humor to kind of make yourself feel comfortable. I think this film does that to a fault. But I think there are other moments like the one where he's with the talk show host and he just can't hide his – Contempt is maybe too strong of a word, but the fact that this is ridiculous, what's Mm -hmm. going on here uh, from his perspective. So anyway, that's what they share. They connect on that. And that's why it's such a strong relationship. These are the only two in this entire country you feel that they've found Who have that. And and so that keeps them going through all these late night conversations. Just to jump quickly back to that lighting, because I don't think you can undersell it that uh, Coppola and Lance Accord manage in the hotel scenes. It's not only that they use the lamps um, in the rooms themselves or in the lobby or in the bar, but it's so often that you could see the Tokyo skyline. Mm -hmm. It's crucial that this is in a skyscraper and that these are large windows that are always behind them. Think how often. I think almost all of the scenes, most of the scenes in the hotel are at night. And so you have the blinking, glowing yes. lights of the skyline behind them. Some of the exterior scenes when they get out, uh, except for the karaoke scene, uh, I think are during the day and you lose that magic. It disappears. And I think that's purposeful because Coppola is creating this place. Yes, they're trapped in the hotel, but it also is this when they're together, it becomes somewhat magical. They mm-hmm. they can do nothing else but be together. And what a relief that they found someone that they want to be
1: with. Yeah. Though, I guess I wonder, these are people who can barely hide their contempt for other people, their dissatisfaction with almost everyone else they encounter. So do we appreciate them and like them for their inability to be phony? Or are we put off a little bit by what is kind of smugness? Oh, they're absolutely smug. I think what I find admirable
0: about them is that their smugness they seem to be in pursuit of some sort of identity yes certainly charlotte is you mm-hmm. know she, she blatantly says it she's not sure recent graduate not sure what to do with her life um, and murray is in a similar position even though he's established and and i always feel like the smugness is rejecting what they rightly regard as false. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're rejecting falseness that can be admired and they're in pursuit of a healthier place. Now, whether or not you find them off putting in that journey and how they handle that and how they treat others, I think that's fair. I think you can look at them that way. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was always fascinating to, to watch them kind of tiptoe towards um, who they want to be. And then increasingly in this reading, whether that might involve being that together.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the layers that you appreciated with this film. And I do appreciate that we don't ever fully get a grasp on exactly what the nature of their relationship is. That's because I don't think they ever fully get a grasp on it. But also even down to details like how much is Charlotte aware of Bob Harris and who he is. She talks to him. When she says things like, so what are you doing here? She talks to him with a kind of directness that suggests she at least has a sense of who he is. Mm -hmm. But it's never really stated. It's never brought up. They don't talk about his career. She doesn't bring it up in a way that makes it very obvious that she knows exactly who he is. They could be kind of two just total strangers, completely foreign to each other, who meet in this foreign place. And I like that. At least that... I think we're meant to understand that she knows who he is, but that it's not overstated is, again, one of those sort of enigmatic aspects to the film.
0: Well, and that's how she treats him. The important thing is that's how she treats him, right? I think one of the first – when they actually have a conversation, one of the first things she says is, so what are you doing here? Right, yeah. And it's it's kind of an acknowledgement of who he is, but also an acknowledgement that it doesn't really matter to her.
1: Yeah. My favorite moment – now I'm curious. I don't remember what you and Angelica singled out, but my – favorite moment in the film it's funny because I went on and on about how much I love those interactions between them especially sitting at the bar and certainly I would strongly consider any of those moments for my favorite Sofia Coppola scenes but I think maybe Scarlett Johansson's best scene in this film is the phone call scene really early when she calls her friend back home hello Lauren Charlotte hey hey oh my god how's Tokyo it's great here it's really great. Um, I don't know, I went to this shrine today mm-hmm. and um, there were these monks and they were chanting and I didn't feel anything, you know? And um, I don't know, I, I, I even tried Ikebana and John is using these hair products. I just, I don't know who I married. Oh, can you
0: wait a second? Just hold on, I'll be right
1: back. Okay, sure. She's saying things that you get the sense As she's verbalizing them, that she's probably never verbalized to anyone before, maybe never even verbalized those thoughts herself. And she's doing it to someone that she's ostensibly looking for some actual sensitivity and insight from. But then it also occurs to me, maybe that's why she calls this person who really doesn't have. The time of day for her and doesn't pay attention to her at all, maybe because she knows she won't actually be heard. And just the fact that she can say these things at all is why she's doing it that she needs to unburden herself of that. I really love that scene. And as I said, all of Scarlett Johansson's acting in this film, I also want to bring up a notion that a listener Nathaniel Myers brought up I don't know if you got a chance to hear this just earlier today he sent in a very long voicemail about this film we won't be able to get to it but I want to touch on a couple things at least one aspect of the film he brought up he really adores this film and he brought up the notion of the female gaze that we get in this film in contrast to the male gaze which is so common in cinema and you can't help or at least I couldn't help but watch that opening scene That very first shot, the famous first shot of this film, which is Scarlett Johansson laying on a bed, the camera behind her, looking at her body sort of, I guess, in profile. And you just see that. You just see her butt, basically, right? That's what's in the frame with the skyline in the background. And I'm watching it thinking, if a man made this film, we would be having a completely different conversation about the decision to open ...on that shot. And I can't articulate why I think that shot is really such a wonder. Something about how erotic it could be, but of course it's not played that way at all, which also seems to fit overall with the type of relationship that we're going to see play out in this movie. But that choice, and then you pair it with some other choices that are made in the film. We were talking about the scene where she can't hide her contempt for the actress. We know that only because the scene is only focused on Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. and her reaction to it. We get glimpses of Anna Ferris, We get glimpses of Giovanni Rubisi, the husband in that scene. But for the most part, it's really just focused on her. And it's all about how she is taking in that scene. Yes, and not yes, only that, that's it. it's how she's taking in her husband in that scene. That's yes. what I love, too, is that... We're watching her react with surprise. She's figuring out who her husband is in this moment in a way that she maybe didn't know before. She's discovering something new. And the fact that Scarlett Johansson embodies that, she's able to show that discovery in so many scenes. We get it again. And Nathaniel brought this one up. We get it again in the karaoke scene when he sings more than this and the way that the camera is focused on her watching bill murray so much of this film and so much of the greatness of this film is us getting to observe scarlett johansson observing
0: yeah and well that's it with coppola it's her films are almost always interior experiences getting seeing things through the eyes of these often young female characters and she's establishing An intimacy by doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's what that opening shot is to me. Fascinating question. If a male director had that same shot, would it be read the same way? Mm -hmm. But Coppola, I mean, her movies are often sensual and involve sexuality. It's not like it's something she's disinterested in, but there's also a very separate interest in pure intimacy. And to me, that's what that shot is. Here is a young woman who is casually laying around by herself Mm -hmm. and she's undressed. She's not fully clothed. That's, to me, that's creating this moment of vulnerability and, and just go back to the same word, intimacy. And so we realize that that's how close this movie is going to bring us mm-hmm. to the character, and that doesn't have to be sexual at all and I don't think it is in that opening scene at least that's not how I read it and uh, that sensibility is carried out throughout the picture um, in some of those examples you were just talking about i I think this you know a lot of this has to do also with Johansson's performance, I agree with you. It's fantastic. It's on the level of Murray. I mean, Murray is, you know, such a breakthrough. When you think about he had been dipping his toes in these waters with Rushmore, but that was also much more comedic. And here he's just, it kind of opened the doors for him to be this whole other guy while still being very funny. Yeah. But Johansson, absolutely his equal. And uh for those reasons we talked about in the scenes together, and also I think it's that Coppola allows her to explore a character in this way. Think about the unhurried pace of this film. And, you know, I've used the word languid to describe Coppola's filmmaking style. That's definitely at work here. And what that allows is the actors to drift in and out of moments just as the characters do mm-hmm. and not be in, in a rush to get to something or overemphasize yeah, anything.
1: that's a, That's that discovery that's happening. A
0: discovery. It's mm-hmm. constantly discovery. And I think, notice how many moments here stop earlier than you expect. That, that karaoke scene, what's so wonderful about that is I think both of their musical singing moments, if I recall correctly, both of them end before the song does. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, Again, just to give you that sense of experiencing it through the character's eyes, what they might remember from the moment. We don't have to have the big climax, the big end. Uh, It just kind of ends when it needs to end. Mm -hmm. And then we move on to the next moment. And I think doing that um, just gives the actors room to breathe as well. And, And this is the result.
1: You know, we talked about some of the humor that doesn't work here and some of the cultural insensitivity. But one of Murray's best scenes in this film is the... Suntory photo shoot yes I think every moment of that photo shoot where he's having that conversation well or not so much of it is of course getting lost in translation but he's having that interaction with the photographer and every part of that when he says Rat Pack and he does his you know Sinatra and Dean Martin impressions and then when he says Roger Moore and he wants him to be James Bond I was rolling through that entire scene it's great stuff that's just choice Bill Murray.
0: Though. Great stuff. It has to be a lot of it improvised. Uh, but what he adds here, or at least what he adds in a lot of the scenes, is quiet physical acting mm-hmm. in that scene to accompany it, right? His, his sort of gestures in response, which are funny, too. But gestures throughout this film that say so much. Mm-hmm. Um, the The pick I made from lost in translation when angelica and i did that list was the late night conversation does it get any easier Mm -hmm. and we talked about how he reaches out for her foot at one point and little things like that which are so tiny but get at the heart of what we've been talking so much about. What is this relationship? you know? And to give us a little clue or a hint or a, um, something else to consider. And he does a lot of that throughout this movie. So I should mention, too, because it'll maybe bring us to um, our theories. Angelica's pick was The Unheard Whisper. It was actually her number one Sofia Coppola scene at the end where um, he sees Charlotte on the street, runs out. He thinks they've already said goodbye. Uh, they embrace He whispers something we can't hear. Yeah, then he kisses her, Mm -hmm. and they separate. (sighs) What's your theory? Well, I don't like it. Okay, this time, and it ties into my my reading. Now, this is not what I want. What I've what I've always loved about this movie is the not knowing. And let me say, I love this ending. Like that, Mm -hmm. we we don't really know, and we have to have these conversations. Um, It's just such of a piece with everything else that has come before. But if I had to name something, I think he's saying, um, "I'll find you when we get back." Hmm. And and it's just how I read. See, that's interesting, so much of it
1: because that's another actually of my little mysteries with the film that I appreciated: the fact that this isn't "Before Sunrise," right, where they're not. Necessarily going to connect again unless they meet in six months. And it's not Brief Encounter, another movie you can't help but think of when you watch this film. We can't get off David Lean here, apparently. It's not Brief Encounter because even though they share the same space, they live in the same city, we know that they realistically aren't going to ever see each other again. It's simply not going to work that way. And yet, here, they both live in the same town. Mm -hmm. There isn't any reason why they couldn't find each other and reconnect if they wanted to. And the movie never suggests that that's really an option unless necessarily you read the ending that way. Now, I don't have any theory about the ending other than I was surprised in taking it in again at just how much of what Bill Murray says you can hear. The fact that it's not the inaudible whisper that i thought it was and then i wasn't surprised to learn today and i think this is an interesting sort of challenge to throw out to anyone and i think i know how you would answer it maybe you're aware of this as well but according to one link i saw earlier today josh somebody out there through the magic of modern technology and sound equipment was able to isolate what's said okay and pulled it out and it is and you I didn't watch because oh, I don't. You don't want to know. know That's what <laughs> like, I'm saying. Okay. Do you want to know? See, I, I don't. Do I, think I don't care because it's it, very obvious to me that what Coppola says is true, which is what she says about it. Well, now she says she always liked what Bill Murray has said in interviews, which is it's between lovers, so no one else needs to. Yeah. Know. But it's very clear that she intended. For that to come through, like she was going to ADR it in later, and then she decided in the editing room that it was better leaving it sure. as a mystery. She made the right call, yes. there. But because she made that call, I don't want to know. Sure, well, and, and because, I'm not going to not going to click on it.
0: Okay, because she made that call, I guess I'm fine with hearing it and realizing that that's sort of like a cutting room floor version. You know, it wouldn't affect knowing. What he said on mm-hmm. the set wouldn't affect my feeling for the film, Which but, is fair. but I'm going to put you on the spot. You have to, you're forced. Yeah. You have to say, what do you think? What do you think he said there? And I think just the opposite of you.
1: Really? I think they're done. They're done. Yeah. I think they're done. I think that's, and maybe it's that's because, what I want. Well, maybe it's because I can't help, but see him in a little bit more of a fatherly role. And you singled out that moment, the touching the leg, Got to give credit to Nathaniel again here for bringing that up in his voicemail. He actually used this phrase, Josh. He called it one of the most explosively tender gestures in all the Hmm. film. Yeah. Explosively tender. But. And that's where that's true. That's where it ends up. That's so lacking in romance and eroticism. And it's so fatherly in nature. That I see that end exchange as one where he's saying to her something about how magical this has been. Yeah. But that's all it will ever be. And and I guess I don't want to quote Casablanca, but we'll always have Tokyo <laughs> right. is essentially what he says to her.
0: I, I like that. I, I Maybe I'll choose to continue to believe that because that's how I first read it. There's something about this time. It's not even so much the kiss. For me, it's more the relief on her face. I can't imagine him saying something like that would produce relief. Hmm. Relief seems to me to offer something more than what they just experienced.
1: Interesting, because I think that supports my theory. I think in a way that relief is her acknowledgement. There's something new, though. Like they, they had left each other knowing
0: this was a brief encounter.
1: This yeah, last Maybe just him verbalizing the momentousness of it. Yeah, could be. And what it could will be. mean for both of them in their lives. It has that meaning because it was that brief encounter. At least that's the theory I'm going with. Lost in Translation is available Anywhere you want to get your movies. I'm sure it's at your local library. I watched it on demand, or you can get it on DVD or other streaming platforms. If you have any thoughts on it, we would love to know what you think about Lost in Translation and your theories about the ending. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top
0: fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is the best original non-biopic musical drama since 1976? When the last Star is Born was in theaters. Also, if you haven't already checked out our sister show, The Next Picture Show, please do that. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at
1: Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend Hellfest, a mass serial killer turns a horror themed amusement park into his own. Personal Playground Night School A group of troublemakers are forced to attend night school and hope that they'll pass the GED exam Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish star in that Smallfoot a yeti is convinced that the elusive creatures known as humans really do exist with voices of Channing Tatum James Corden and Zendaya This is this is a great week for the it's Adam Kapanar.
0: Gun to the head Gun to the head What are you going to see I was going to ask you Gun to the head Oh man Well, you know I'm going to night school. I mean, that's that's a no-brainer for me. I, Come I'm, on, I, you're coming. I with. might go Hellfest. <laughs> no, you're not. I think I'd rather horror? see Hellfest
1: you're horror than Night School. All right. I do. Let me know how it is. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago. Colette, a biopic of the French novelist starring Kira Knightley. Little Women, a modern retelling of the Louisa May Alcott novel and the sisters, brothers, John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, Jake Gyllenhaal, recommended by both of us here on Film Spotting. Next week, we are planning to review Bradley Cooper's Oscar hopeful a star is born and probably share so you think that's angling for some Oscars <laughs> just just maybe a few okay probably going to get to our top five movie duets we're going to bring in a third member of the team Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will join us for that at least we hope he will.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to give us a rating or even a review over on Apple Podcasts. That way we can find a few new listeners. Our music this week came from Caroline Rose. It's from the album Loner. You can find more information at carolinerosemusic.com.
1: For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.